the letter to Paul of Paul to Titus. We're going to deal with chapter 3 this morning, so it is the close of this very short letter that Paul has written to a young pastor. There are three of these specifically in the New Testament, First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. As Paul, near the end of his life, is writing to these pastors, giving them advice, telling them how to help organize and put together the church. And we've dealt with these things throughout the book of Titus, and we come to the end of chapter 3. And as Paul closes out this book, he does a little bit of housekeeping at the end of the epistle, which he does at just about the end of every epistle that he writes. But he is most interested in the lives of disciples. He's most interested in how our lives have been changed and become new and become witnesses to God inside of their world and our world. Specifically, what Paul wants in this passage of Scripture is for Christians to be ready to do every good work. This is a phrase that's going to show up, I think, at least three times inside of this short chapter. In fact, if your Bible has section headings, uh, that's right at the, the top of chapter three, being ready for every good work. And as Paul talks about that, he puts that thought into the context of the larger community. For these Christians on the island of Crete, it's important for them to be ready to do every good work in the context of their culture, their government, the lives they used to lead with rulers and authorities. He puts it in the context of the larger community. And then he also puts it in the context of the lives that they used to lead. It isn't just that their lives are different now or need to be lived differently because of the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's that they all know that they used to live radically different lives. And Paul says, it's not just you, but he says, we ourselves used to live this way. God has just done something dramatic and powerful and changed all of that. And so Paul reminds them of the most important context here as well, that God's goodness and God's mercy have changed our lives. So the life of the follower of Jesus, and we've seen this in different ways throughout this short book, the life of the follower of Jesus is a witness to the world around them. We live to the glory of God, and we want the rest of the world to see God because of our lives, individually and together in all that we do. And then the life of the follower of Jesus Christ is possible only because of the power of God. What is it that God has done for me? The Apostle Paul, after spending years as a missionary, as an apostle, planting churches, encouraging churches, watching people get saved, you would think that he would have gotten over his moment of salvation, but he doesn't. He writes this letter near the end of his life, and he is still overwhelmed by what God did for him. So how now, then, do we live in response to the goodness and the power of God? So here in the last chapter of Titus, some of the things that are gonna help us make sense of this chapter. First of all, we've mentioned this and this is what rolls throughout this entire chapter. Christians live ready for every good work. We live ready to do every good work. I think that's an important phrase. So what does this mean for us? Who gets to define what is a good work for us? 
And why is this kind of life important for everyone else around us? Paul's going to use that language later in this chapter that as we live this way, it's good for everybody else as well. So Christians live ready for every good work. We're gonna see that life without Christ is filled with sin and deception. Life without Christ is filled with sin and deception. Paul pulls no punches with this issue. This may sound sometimes harsh and narrow-minded, but I think the real world fleshes this out. If you talk to somebody who has had one of those radical moments of salvation late in life, they will tell you this story is true, that life before Christ is radically different than life after Christ. Our sin deceives us, our enemy deceives us, but God is at work doing powerful things. And that's what's at the very heart of this chapter. God's goodness and his mercy changes lives. Paul actually says we were living in deception until God's mercy showed up. God's power is the only kind of power that can free our hearts and minds from sin and deception and lead us into the light. His power is the only kind of power that can actually do that. So let's read Titus chapter three. It's 15 verses long. Let's read the whole thing. We'll go back and we'll pick up a lot of what I think is important inside of this chapter. Titus chapter three, verse one. This is the word of the Lord. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help 
so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. There's a lot of beautiful stuff inside of this chapter. First, I want to think very quickly about some of Paul's housekeeping at the end of this letter. And again, he does this at the end of many letters. We get a feel for the individuals who are inside of his missionary team. If you read the book of Acts or you look at those maps that are at the back of your Bible, you see all of Paul's missionary journeys. But what we realize as we read through the epistles that it's not just Paul, it's a team of individuals. And as Paul moves from place to place, either preaching the gospel for the first time and starting brand new churches, or he moves to one place and realizes the church is already there, so he preaches and strengthens the church. He is constantly organizing support for those churches. That's what the book of Titus is. He said in chapter one, I left you there at Crete so that you could put things in order and build the church in this way, in this way, in this way. So we have some of these names, and Paul says, I'm gonna send one of these two guys with you. Whoever's available, I'm going to send. The other two that I left with you, I need you to send them back to me. Here's where I am. I'm gonna spend the winter here, make sure that they are taken care of. It's beautiful. Because oftentimes when we think about the early church and how it gets started, if you read your New Testament often, you think about, well, the Apostle Paul, man, was the the tip of the spear. We think about Peter and we think about John, we think about the the disciples and, and these individuals, but then we realize that the growth and the strength and the power of the church of Jesus Christ is filled with people whose names we may never know. Some of them we know their names, but we know almost nothing else about them except they helped build the church. Paul couldn't be everywhere at once. Titus couldn't be everywhere at once. So I need you, Titus, to build the church up in such a way. Everybody had this role to play in the early church. Everybody has this critical role to play still today in the strengthening, the building, and the expansion of the church of Jesus Christ. The more I read the New Testament letters, the more I like these lists. You see a couple of these names and a couple of epistles. Paul often speaks fondly of these individuals. We learn sometimes from the apostle, from the apostles who has betrayed them and betrayed the church. We, they name names. If this guy shows up, have nothing to do with him. Don't even let him inside of your house. But this person is dear to me, and I need you to send him back to me. The relationship of the family of God as the church grows. It is this expansive, powerful thing that absolutely every one of us has a role in. So it feels like housekeeping, but it's actually a critical part of how the church grows. But if we go back to the beginning of chapter three, verse one, Paul tells Titus, I want you to remind the Christians on Crete, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Think again for a second about the context in which Paul says this. We've talked about the Cretan culture. Paul talks about the Cretan culture. It's full of violence and sexual immorality, 
The lives that these Christians are leading are vastly different from the lives they lived before they became Christians. It is a broken and sin-filled culture. And so it is into that culture the Apostle Paul says, I need Christians to be ready to do every good work, to learn how to be obedient to authority. I want to stop and spend a couple of minutes on this because this has been a hot potato for the church for a couple of years now. It's been a complicated issue inside of the church. There are people inside of the church who have had kind of a ham-fisted, simplistic view of what the Apostle Paul says here in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, is very similar. There are people outside of the church who have gotten angry at the church for not obeying a wooden, literal interpretation of this passage. Well, the state tells you to do something. The Bible tells you to obey the state. You'd better do it. End of story. Yours truly has gotten yelled at a couple of times online for people who see it that way. So I want to talk a little bit about what this means because it's not just two verses of Scripture in the New Testament. It's an entire understanding biblically of how God has arranged the state, the government, and his children to live inside of the world, inside of those states and governments. I'm gonna give you just a, a brief couple of big important ideas. But on our Tuesday nights, and again, I encourage you if you can to make it on Tuesday nights, we've actually been dealing with this issue for several weeks now. We've been fleshing out a biblical understanding of the relationship between the Christian and the state and God. Because it's a really big deal. So I'm gonna talk for a couple of minutes about the relationship between the Christian and the government. The Apostle Paul talks about it, so I want us to understand it. The first thing is pretty straightforward, but I wanna understand what this means biblically. First of all, just like Paul says, Christians should be ready to obey what is right and do what is good. Christians should be ready in their culture, whatever it looks like, to obey what is right and to do what is good. This is our disposition to our ruling authorities. This is our disposition as citizens. This is our disposition toward our neighbor and the big ideas that form and shape our culture. We need to be ready. Again, Paul uses this language at least three times in this chapter. To do what is right and to do what is good. Christians don't riot. Christians don't burn businesses and police departments to the ground. Christians don't threaten their opponents with physical violence and death. Christians don't turn over cars in the streets and cause anger and fear and division. We have an entirely different set of tools at our disposal as we engage the world around us. We, Paul says, should not be ready to cause violence, harm, and fear. We should be ready to do what is right and good. Christians are responsible before God for our public behavior. He is the one who sets the standard for us. When we use the term good in Titus chapter three, we're talking about the good that is given to us by the character and the will of God. He defines what is good. So Christians are responsible to God for their behavior in public. Now the next thing I'm going to say may actually change someone's politics. 
Governments are also responsible to God for what they do. The more you read Romans chapter 13, those first few verses, it's not just obey the state, obey the state, obey the state. It's the state has been designed by God to do certain things. And the state is responsible to God for what they do. So we are responsible to God. Government is responsible to God. It is false that the government is an authority that is equal to God or above God. That's a falsehood. That is something that humans have been trying to convince themselves of for as long as humans have been around. This is the mistake of the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis. We're God, and we're going to show everybody that we're God. The institution of government is a God-designed thing. It is intended by God to create a society where citizens can flourish and worship. God considers worship more important than law. Government is designed to stem the tide of sin in culture. It is designed to create a situation in which citizens can flourish as much as possible and allow for worship. This is just the biblical model of why God did this. So friends, the nutshell understanding of what we're reading here in Titus chapter three and what the Bible says about these things, as long as these governments do not directly oppose God's will, Christians need to be ready to obey and be good citizens. As long as Christians then need to be ready to do what is right and good. So the second step in this Because governments are subject to God, Christians have a higher authority in God himself. Christians have a higher authority in God himself. This is why if you're a student of history and you pay attention to why governments and organizations go wrong, it often includes the belief that there is no such thing as God and the state is going to become God. So the state sets itself not just equal with God, but above God. But the church lives as a witness to the highest authority. The church lives as a witness ready to do good works and obey whenever and however we can, but we live as a witness that God is the highest authority. So God wills that we do good. He wants us to do his kind of good. So if the state opposes God's will, the Christian is still responsible to God to do his good. And like the Apostle Paul says later on inside of this chapter, it's good for everybody when the church does this. So God is the one who defines what is right and good for both the Christian and the state. Here's a quick and handy way to understand how Titus chapter three, verse one, is not a literal catch-all, just do everything the state tells you to do. The Apostle Paul wrote Titus chapter three, verse one. The Apostle Paul was also beheaded by Emperor Nero in Rome. Why was he beheaded? Was he beheaded by Nero for obeying the state too much? He was beheaded for disobeying the decree that he should stop preaching the gospel. He's told that, but he keeps preaching the gospel. He keeps preaching the gospel. He gets himself sideways with people with power, 
And Nero decides, I'm more important than Paul's call by God to preach the gospel, so I'm going to behead Paul and crucify Peter. The guy who wrote this disobeyed the state when it came to preaching the gospel. Does that make sense? It's an important piece in what's happening here. But bottom line, one of our roles as individuals, as Christian families, as the Christian church, one of our roles in society is as agents for the good of God. This is just one of our roles. This is the kind of thing that Paul is telling us. We read this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, verses 13 through 16. Jesus puts it like this. You are the salt of the earth, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is one of our jobs here on earth while God has us here, is to live as salt and light, to be agents of the good of God for those around us, whatever it takes. And we do this, not so that people will see how awesome and incredible and charitable we are. They may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Is there a higher task? Is there a greater thing for us to be able to do in this world that the agents for the good of God? It's a beautiful and powerful thing. So as Paul is talking about, I want Christians to live this way. I want them to be ready to do the good of God in all situations as often as they possibly can. He sort of takes a step back chronologically for both them and himself, and he says, because you gotta remember, at one point we were all fools. We were deceived. We were full of hate. So this is what he says in verse three. Just remind ourselves of this. Titus 3.3 For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. We were spending our time from dawn to dusk in hate and malice and envy, hating other people and being hated by other people. Sounds like quite the life, doesn't it? Paul has not lost sight of who he was before Jesus Christ. And he's able to talk to these Cretan Christians. And remember, when we read the New Testament, we're reading the first generation of Christians. There are no church kids who were born and raised in the nursery, the children's church, and now have, you know, graduated to main service. All of these people have been saved just recently, all of them. But we ourselves were once fools. When Paul uses that term, it's important that we as as people who read and try to understand scripture know that when Paul says we were once foolish, the word fool in the Bible is not just an insult. It's not just something we call somebody who's doing something dumb or we don't like them or it's hurt us and so we call them a fool. It's not just an insult. It is a way of life. 
It is, a, it is a term that has an encyclopedic definition in Scripture. In fact, you go back to the Old Testament, you read the book of Proverbs and other pieces of wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and oftentimes it can be boiled down to, this is the way of the wise and this is the way of the fool. Don't be a fool. <laughs> this is what it looks like. I need you to follow in the way of wisdom. So when Paul uses that term, He's not, it's just not a throwaway, angry term. It's a term that's loaded with information. Biblical foolishness is spiritual, intellectual, and moral blindness. The fool in Scripture does not see what the world around them is really like. The book of Proverbs says they stumble over things that they don't even know what they are. The fool or the sluggard, you can put a bowl of food in front of a hungry fool, they'll put their hand in, in the bowl and they won't even know enough to lift it and put it into their mouth. The fool just doesn't see. The fool just doesn't understand. But we ourselves were once fools, he says. So before Christ, the Christians in Crete lived in this deception. They were led astray, this language that he uses. They were slaves to all kinds of desires and passions. If you're reading a different translation, that little phrase says that we were slaves to different desires and passions. One of those words might actually be translated as lusts. That's how the Greek actually works. So Paul is telling us the heart and the mind of the unbeliever do not see God for who he is or what God's good is like. And it's a continuum. For some people, that deception is much deeper than it is for others. But nonetheless, it is there, Paul says. All of us lived in this kind of deception. And Scripture has a lot to say about what sin does to us. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. We just don't have it in us to do God's kind of good if we deny that God exists. And this is the fool, again, not an insult, but a description of a way of life that is just blind to God. A passage that Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, speaking about this kind of thing. Romans 1, 21 and 22, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking. The way that they think through the world, the reason through the world has gone bad. But they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is the path we walk when we deny the existence of God and we're given over to that denial. It's the way sin works in the human heart. And then when Paul writes to this other young pastor, Timothy, he says this in 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 and 13. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters, those in the church who are not followers of Christ, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. They themselves have been deceived by their sin, by the enemy, and then that's the role that many of them begin to play is as deceivers. Paul does not write this to demean 
the people who have not yet found Jesus Christ. He describes it, but most importantly, he says, but we ourselves were once these kinds of fools. This is incredible, friends. Deception does not need to be the end of the story. We have to keep this before our hearts and minds as the storm of our culture and our world just continues to blow around us. We need to see things about God even more clearly. God saved Paul. That's what Paul is reminding us of. God saved Paul, and God continues to save people out from deception. God still saves sinners. As much as culture changes, as much as you may feel like the the divide between us and everyone else or them and us or whatever it is, the more you feel like that divide is becoming the Grand Canyon, we need to be reminded that God is still at work saving sinners. How many of you remember our interview with Beckett Cook back in April? We need to be reminded of stories like that because that is his story, living as a homosexual man for decades and then God just radically saved him. It's one of the first questions I asked him. Does God still save sinners? And he said, thank God he does. God is still at work. And then we have to remember this as well. And I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about other Christians. Christians are still capable of this kind of foolishness because sin is still right at the door. Sin is still inbred inside of our hearts and minds as the Holy Spirit works within us. We are saved, but sin still wants to do its work inside of us and turn us into fools and to deceive us and to lead us away from the truth and the goodness and the light. So we need to be reminded of these lies and the difference that God creates. So we think about that level of deception, that kind of foolishness, that work inside of the sinful heart. And then look at verse four. If you have your Bible open, just let those first few words soak in for a second. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, but the goodness and the loving kindness of God appeared to me, Paul says. He appeared to you Christians in Crete. The goodness and the loving kindness and the mercy of God showed up and rescued you. He saved us, Paul says. This is the solution to all of that. This is the goodness and the power that changes all of the foolishness and all of the enslavement to sin. This is what solves that. God shows up in power and love. If you read through those four verses, three, four, five, six, and seven, five verses, the language is incredible. Goodness loving kindness, mercy, regeneration, renewal, hope, eternal life. This is God's work toward the sinner. 
This is what we have been saved from and saved by. We're intended to read verse three and think, man, that is an unattractive list of things. We read verse three and we say, we know what that life looks like. I see it around me. I see it in my own soul. I see it in my own experience. Is there a way out of foolishness and hatred and malice and envy? And Paul says, there is a way out. It is the goodness and the loving kindness and the mercy of God. Friends, this is an incredible reality that sinners who live in opposition to God, sinners who live both claiming that God does not exist and at the same time claiming they hate him, people who live blaspheming God, people who live deliberately choosing the opposite of God's good way, God's first gesture to sinners is goodness. It should be judgment. It should be separation for him for all of eternity. But God's first gesture towards sinners is he shows up with goodness and loving kindness and mercy and regeneration and renewal and hope and eternal life. It's incredible. God has chosen to begin with his goodness when revealing himself to sinners. Think of it like this for a moment. God is absolutely perfect in himself. God does not need any of us in his existence. So every act of revelation of himself to us is an act of undeserved mercy coming from his perfect goodness. He doesn't have to do this, but he does. And he shows up and he reveals himself. Right now, today is the day of the goodness and the loving kindness and the mercy of God. Respond to God while it is still called today, Paul says in another passage. Because right now, God is approaching us with his goodness. Paul says further in this passage, and this all happens, he saved us, but he saved us, Paul says. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We simply cannot add up enough good deeds or build enough good intentions in our heart to merit salvation. We can't do it. Not by any deed that we've done in righteousness, but it is by his mercy, his choice. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he chose to reveal himself to us so that we can be saved. Further on in that little passage, he talks about the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit being washed of our sins and washed of that malice and envy and being ruled by anger and hatred and anxiety. This is the power that makes the old life new. It is the washing and the regeneration and the power of the Holy Spirit amongst God's people. 
God has adopted his children into his family. And now we learn to act like our heavenly father. And it is the presence of the Holy Spirit that is at work doing that in us. He says we are justified. That is that biblical word that means because of the act of Jesus Christ, at the moment of salvation, we go from being a sinner to being a child of God. We are justified like that. And we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Children in the household of God have as their inheritance the hope of eternal life. I mean, this is just full of beautiful things. So much so that after Paul rolls through all of this, and I'd encourage you if you study to take this passage of scripture and take these pieces of vocabulary and run through scripture with these ideas and put these passages together. It's so important to Paul that when he talks about this, and he does it two or three times in his epistles, he then says, and this is a trustworthy statement. I like that. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to do every good work. When Paul talks about what salvation does in the lives of sinners, he says there's no shaking this truth. There's no stopping this truth. It is trustworthy. You can rely on it. You can literally lay your life on this truth, and it's going to hold up. I need you to insist on this. I need you to talk about it, teach it. I need these people to believe it. I need the world to hear it. Salvation is a real thing. This is not just a word that we throw around. It's a real thing, and it really changes lives. And then as Paul continues in this passage, he touches on some things he's touched on in the past, but he's talking again about the, the structure of teaching, the structure of what needs to happen inside of the church, even what needs to be gotten outside of the church, gotten rid of in the church. The work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, as we are saved, as our families come to Christ, as the church gets put together, the work of God needs to lead to Christ-like integrity inside of the church. Our good works, he says, the good works of God inside of our lives, he says they are excellent and they are profitable for everyone. The good works of God, both inside and outside of the church, they are good for everyone. Friends, the voice of the church that is faithful to Jesus Christ is critical in our world. In fact, he even says that the church has the right and the duty to separate those who are in the church to cause division. The church has this kind of role, this right, this kind of duty. If division's being caused, Paul says they have been self-condemned. Warn them, give them their chance, and then let them go. The church of Jesus Christ is a precious thing to God, and it needs to be precious to us. It needs to be precious to us. The preaching of the gospel, the work of discipleship, the transforming of lives, the cleansing of sin, and even protecting the flock from wolves. This is one of the roles of the church. You're causing division, you're causing trouble. Here's your warning. If it continues, Paul says, let them go. Let them go. The 
the more a culture separates itself from the things that God defines as good, the further away from the goodness of God a culture goes, the more it needs the church to stand firm. The more it needs people to do what Paul is calling the Cretan Christians to do. It's almost as if Paul is saying, nobody in your neighborhood behaves this way, but I need you to behave this way. Nobody in your ruling authority structure behaves this way, but I need you to behave this way. Because he says it's going to be good for everyone. And in many ways, this is the thrust of this entire epistle to Titus. And as we've walked through these three chapters, we've seen these three things, and this is how we have sort of put this book together. That first chapter was about a a new form of leadership, a new leadership inside of the church. It's a different way of doing things, again, than you used to lead or run things, a new leadership. Chapter two, we talked about a new kind of family. And here we're talking about this new way of life. All of it is new. To the culture of Crete, it was literally brand new. No one had lived this way before. No one was a Christian before. The church had never existed before. It's brand new to them. And for us, what was new to them needs to become new to us again. The differences are becoming clearer as the church remains faithful, its faithful voice in the public square, its faithfulness to the orthodoxy of Scripture. It's just becoming clearer and clearer and clearer all the time. As a world rejects the way of Christ, the church needs to make sure that we are living it and speaking it and walking out into this world with the truth of Jesus Christ. Crete was a pre-Christian culture that needed a new way of life. Ours is a post-Christian culture that needs the renewal of this way of life. It's not as if our culture is a ship lost at sea and the church is the lighthouse. Our culture is like an armada fighting against a storm of its own creation and there's the church as a lighthouse. Some will see and some will come. But this is our job. It is a new opportunity for the church to make sure that our eyes are on Christ. And that the life that we are living points, points everyone to the way of Jesus. This is the goodness of God versus the deception of sin. Individuals are not our enemies. But the enemy is at work causing these divisions. And Paul says, we need to understand what the goodness of God does. And I need the church to be this kind of church so that more and more people can see the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior. Let's pray.